Hello, and welcome to the Taking Control of Your Diabetes podcast. My name is Steve Edelman. I have diabetes. I work at the University of California, San Diego, the Veteran Affairs Medical Center, and very importantly, right here at Taking Control of Your Diabetes. And I'm not here with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Jeremy Pettis. He's off in the world writing a grant uh, to study more things about us folks with diabetes. Now, um, Chris, thank you so much for joining today. I, we have today Chris Rudin, who is uh, a very interesting person that's gone through a lot in his life. And I'm just going to say, Chris, tell us your story. And I know you well from the past, but I want to learn more about you on today's show. Absolutely. A quick wrap up. One, thank you for having me and thank you for all that you do. I've been involved with TCOID for a long time. But uh, my name is Chris Rudin. I was born with a physical disability, two fingers on my left hand and a shorter left arm, and I got diabetes at 19 years old. I hid my physical disability for almost 20 years, up until four years ago, and I've also broken a bunch of world records in powerlifting against what I call normies or uh, non-disabled folks. Uh, <laughs> I've been on a TV show with Dwayne The Rock Johnson bunch of magazines like people magazine and some big stuff that makes me look like a d-list celebrity in the space uh diabetes i guess you could say mm -hmm. but uh, i travel around the world and help people see their world without limits so now i speak for organizations companies and nonprofits on overcoming adversity diversity and inclusion and change management plus i love donuts so there's that <laughs> well we're gonna have to have you on our donut challenge again too <sighs> I feel bad for anyone else because then they'll be competing for second place. <laughs> now, um, there's a website folks can go to and see some of the stuff you've done and pictures of yourself and your disability and things like that. Yeah. So my website is just Chris Rudin and all my socials are Chris Rudin. So I have about 150,000 followers across all the channels uh, from YouTube to Instagram, TikTok for more mental health stuff. But uh, I'm all over the place. Now, you said... Uh you came out of the closet, you said four years ago. Did I yeah. hear that right? So yeah. what, what happened? What led to that? And What's, yo, you're, you're in your what? Late twenties. Today is actually my birthday. I'm 33 today. So, uh, so that's different. That's different. I mean, <laughs> you had this disability as a kid. Yep. I've seen, I've seen you with your prosthesis on your arm mm -hmm. and you wear that proudly and it looks awesome. Uh, and you know, it's nice that you know, you don't, you're out of the closet now, but gosh, you went through most of your life in the majority, closet. Majority so of my life. Yeah. So, um, I went, my, my parents did the best they could. We grew up in a rough neighborhood and they did everything they could to send me to a school to try and like shelter me. And I was in a school full of like maybe 12 kids across three different grades total. So eventually they couldn't afford that anymore. So they would send me to public school and around middle school, which is the worst time in anyone's life. Sure. Um, I wasn't hiding my hand at the time. You know, I was like, whatever age that is when you go to fifth, sixth grade. And I was drastically bullied, made fun of. Specifically, there was this girl named Crystal who I wanted to ask out. And she ended up making fun of my hand in front of the entire class with a stapler, calling me claw boy because I had two fingers on my left hand. And that started <laughs> me shoving my hand in my pocket. I kept my hand in my pocket for five years before I started putting a glove over my hand. And when I mean I kept my hand in my pocket, I almost got arrested in Washington, D.C. as a 13-year-old because I refused to take my hand out of my pocket for security. They took me into the back room and I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to be arrested by the Secret Service because I won't take my hand out of my pocket. And it took a lot of people to convince me 
to take my hand out of my pocket for two seconds. That's how terrified I was of being seen or having this disability. I hated myself and I felt like a monster. I eventually put a glove over my hand and I kept that glove on for 12 years all throughout high school and college and even starting my speaking career. My first ever TCOID event, um, I was still wearing my glove. Yeah, I remember that event. Um, and to be honest, at that time, I wasn't paying attention to those type of things because you were someone in the crowd. And I think our group was pretty accepting and and didn't you know put any preconceived notions on it. Yeah, so. Definitely. Yeah, I appreciate you being involved with TCID. What, what, how long ago was that? The, your first one? That was 2019, I yeah. think. 2019, 2018, around there. And uh, I was still starting my career speaking. I was working with a CGM company at the time. And I went to that event. And I was still perceived at this as this like massively confident person because I was building my body in the fitness space. And yep. I had these ideologies that I like to talk about. But I was always a big believer and I'm not perfect. I'm not speaking down to you just because I'm on the stage. We're real and I'm still struggling with my demons in front of you. Mm-hmm. I felt the authenticity of like, hey, guys, I'm struggling too. But here's what I can teach you in the process of getting better, in the process of growing, you know. Um, so that was a, that was tough to kind of go through in front of people. But once I stopped hiding my hand, that kind of changed everything for me, you know. I thought you were just having fun playing pocket pool (laughs) a lot of people a lot of people thought that you know they're like oh wow are you like a dancer i actually did dance for like quite a few years a lot of people don't know that about me um but people thought the glove was like a style thing or like it was like a a personal choice and like no it was literally me hiding my hand Uh, i had a fingerless glove with no fingers literally so uh that glove allowed me to play drums i would shove a drumstick through the finger hole of a glove i did everything but show my hand. So I almost was like, Hey, look over here. Don't look at the disability. Look at how cool I am. I was hiding in plain sight. And a lot of people do that. Yeah. Well, gosh, I can't imagine growing up with a disability, how cruel the world could be. And, uh, what about when did you get diabetes? I got diabetes at 19 years old. So that was 2009, 2010, just as I was going into college, no one in my family had diabetes. Both of my parents were nurses, but they didn't know about type one. They knew about type two and it didn't make sense to them because that's just, they never really encountered that. So it was a, a very weird experience to get diagnosed. I didn't get much uh, training or just kind of left in the wild. Like, Hey, you have this thing, you have to stick yourself and do some stuff. And I was like, well, what the hell do I do now? You know, it was a big learning curve. Well, Gosh, I mean, did you ever say to yourself, you know, first I get the disability and then I get diabetes as you're going off to college, but gosh, at some point you say, is there anything else that can happen to me? Yeah, that, um, I don't know that I had a specific questioning, but the real thing I remember saying in the hospital room, like I finally told my mom to go home because she was just so upset crying. And um, (laughs) I remember being in a hospital and just looking up and being like, like, are you for real? Like, is, is this a joke? Like the diabetic disabled kid now? Like, what am I just collecting uh, mm-hmm. adversity awards? <laughs> like, what's going on? And I, I just remember thinking, there has to be more than this. There has to be more than just being sick and broken 
I, I didn't know what that looked like. It took me a long time after being diagnosed with diabetes, but I think a healthy amount of questioning started the process of like, maybe there's more to life than all the shit that happens to me, you know? Yeah. And, uh, when you were going to college, did you have any idea of what you were going to do, what you're going to major in? Were you, did your parents want you close to home? That kind of thing. You know, I, I'll just say real quickly that having parents in the medical field at that time uh, reminds me of when I was diagnosed that the, the, they saw pretty much bad things of what happened to people with diabetes. You know, and so <laughs> it wasn't like today where, you know, it's not a death sentence anymore. But back then, as a parent, your kid gets type one, you've just fought to get them through life with a disability. And like, you're, they're probably, are they still together? They're not together, but uh, that was definitely a big source of like uh, frustration and fight because I feel like the medical, having medical parents is like a statistical bell curve. Like it can start off really good, but it can also be really bad yeah. because they do see those bad things in ER and different situations. Anything related to diabetes, emotionally, they're going to attach that to their kid. So like they see a foot being amputated and like, oh my God, that's going to happen to my kid. You know, they see the struggles yeah. of someone coming in passed out and they're like, oh my God, that's diabetes. My kid has that. They're almost waiting for something bad to happen. And it's... Like knowledge makes the access of that information worse, but then the emotion runs wild with it. So I think my parents were definitely uh, stressed about it. So I almost tried to not hide my diabetes, but I tried to hide the hard parts mm -hmm. so that it didn't burden them more. They were already working 40, 60 hours a week. You know, my mm -hmm. mom was doing 16 hour shifts down in um, Miami where she lived. And it was just, I didn't want to make it worse. So it was funny. I got the burden of the disease but I didn't want to pass that burden on to my yeah. parents, you know? Yeah. Now, did they get divorced because of the issues with around you or you don't have to share that if you don't want to. Yeah. No, no. Uh, I think, I think they had like their own issues before, but I think that definitely added to a big struggle around the situation for sure, because that was such an unknown space and on a already rocky foundation for anyone in a relationship, having a kid with a condition, that is literally minute by minute, um, that is either going to solidify or break down. And I think that contributed somewhat to the breakdown. Mm -hmm. Wow. Chris, why, why do you say more positivity is not the answer? It's funny. Um, a lot of people see me as what, like, I guess a motivational speaker mm -hmm. and I don't consider myself a positivity hippie. Like I'm not standing in a burning building chanting positive affirmations. I'm going to get the hell out. Like I'm more of a cynical realist. Like there's a point where too much positivity becomes toxic, where mm -hmm. you're being so positive that you think things are just going to happen externally to you. you. I'm sorry, but you can't, this is not to be religious, but you can't like pray your blood sugars better. You can't think your blood sugars better. You can't write positive affirmations to make your blood sugars better. At the end of the day, you have to do the work. So being positive, I guess that can help you temporarily, but if your positivity stops you from doing the work, it's a negative thing. Yeah. And that's why you say more positivity. Yes. More and more and more. It's people just have this like addiction to more. So they think being more positive is going to help. It's to me, it's not just about positivity. It's about effectiveness and being realistic. If I do nothing, will this make this better or worse? 
it comes down to the realism of, am I doing what I need to do to make this a little bit better or to make this suck a little bit less? Those are the questions I constantly ask myself, whether it's diabetes or life or anything. Yeah, (laughs) I totally agree with you. Uh, There's a limit to, there's real positivity and then there's kind of over the edge fake positivity. Now, what about quoting the opposite? What does that have to do with, uh, what are you thinking? Ah, yes. So I saw a study that was talking about what's more effective, being more positive or being less negative. And a lot of people want to be more positive, but these studies showed that it's more effective to get rid of the negative than it is to add more positive. So a lot of times what we need to do is not do more things. We need to do less of the things that are screwing us over, less of the self-sabotage, less of the negative thoughts. We need to control those. But we have this like addiction to more. You know, if someone sets a goal for the gym and they want to lose 20 pounds, some of the first things people do is go out and buy new shoes. They buy new weight belts and gloves and outfits. And it's the last thing you need to do is buy things. You need to do things. We need to stop eating the bad foods. We need to stop being lazy. We need to stop doing all this stuff. But we're so convinced we need to add when in actuality, we need to subtract sometimes. Wow. That's interesting. Now, I've also heard you say how how people can use language to better manage their diabetes. Like when it goes up, you yell, what the? Yep. F. F word. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Somehow that brings it down on its own. Yeah. Uh, so language is a huge part of my speaking business. And one of my keynotes is all about language. And I find that language is the a big determining factor in how we respond and the behaviors that pursue. So if you've ever heard someone say something like, Oh, I'm just, I'm just so lazy. Well, that's actually a lie. You have been lazy in the past, but it's not who you currently are. Maybe it's who you currently are choosing to be, but what you've done in the past is not who you are because at any point you can change your habits. Easier said than done, of course, but better done than said. So when we choose language, we define ourselves and give us excuses to continue being the person that didn't serve us in the first place. So when you say, oh, I just I just never bolus on time. No, 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 no. You haven't bolused on time in the past, but you don't have to continue that behavior. Mm -hmm. But if you use language to support the behavior that's screwing you over, you are actively investing in a situation that is royally screwing you. So language (laughs) makes such a massive impact. And I do this uh, uh, thing on a whiteboard when I speak at diabetes events. I put Mm -hmm. the number 367 and I ask people, what are some emotions when you see this? And obviously, I'm sure you could say, you know, frustration, angry, sad, annoyed, pissed. Then under that number, I put the word puppies. And suddenly, it's just this excitement eruption of laughter and like joy. And the only thing that changed was the description of the term. Because at the end of the day, the number holds no emotion. It's the emotion we give to it, the language we give to it, and that power of storytelling. The problem is we see a blood sugar, and we call it a bad blood sugar, and then we tell ourselves this story about how we're going to die and suffer and burn because of this one sugar that just, now I have no more toes in seven years, and you're just... You become Steven Spielberg of the worst, shittiest novel, and you're the star, you know, all from that one number that had no emotional weight except for the weight that you gave it. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It does. It makes lots of sense. Now, you know, the the thing about uh, I 
about people that say they they forget to bolus. You know, you brought that up, and that strikes a chord with me because when patients tell me that, I want to choke them okay. uh, because their A one C has been high for months and months. I need you to have be right there in clinic. You would be a great, um, uh, for lack of a better word, clinical psychologist for a lot of people with diabetes. Uh, you know, who go through struggles doing, quote unquote, what they know and should do, but do not. You know, we got people like Bill Polonsky and other clinical psychologists that do that for a living. But have you ever seen a therapist yourself with all your issues? I mean, if you haven't, I'd be shocked. Yeah, so I've definitely seen therapists and I have one that I see regularly, um, not only when I need to, but for almost maintenance, you know. I think it's really important to have someone like all coaches have coaches, LeBron James, Bruce Lee, everyone had a mentor or a coach. And if you think you're above that, you are in the most need of it. Uh, everyone needs a second set of eyes because sometimes we're so close to the wall. We can't see the bigger picture and some coaches or therapists help us zoom out. I am a big believer in getting that third party validation or opinion to help reframe things. So I'm all for that. You know what? Um, it seems to be a regular thing on the podcast. I'm <laughs> almost like everybody. And I'll tell you what, it's a, it's a, it's such a, uh, it's a privilege to be able to, let's say, afford it or if your insurance has it. But, you know, I see a therapist myself and I, I'll tell you what, yes, when I need them, uh, but also I'd say some of the best sessions we've ever had are when I don't go in with any particular issue going on. I love that. Just say, Hey, Greg, I'm doing great. What's on your mind? Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm here to support your kid through college. Let's let's talk about something. And um sometimes, you know, things really come out. You can't do it yourself. That's you why that's why I said you could be you uh as Chris Rudin could could be a good support system and you are not in the official, you know, position of clinical therapist, but, yeah. but all the speaking you do and you know, you you're such an impactful uh person yourself. Now, why is managing a business like managing your diabetes? And tell us about, is there anything more than your speaking business? That's a full-time job? So speaking is a full-time job. I've been doing that for five or six years. The last three years have been extremely full-time, and it's really taken off in the last two years. Um, I've spoken for such major corporations uh, like Facebook and Lidos, who makes all the TSA equipment and target all these major companies it's amazing but i can i can see why you're sought after i appreciate so con, that so it's, congrats it, on that thank you i actually started in the diabetes space and uh it was funny it was the nonprofits that really helped me start my speaking business and i became that celebrity in the diabetes space and then grew to disability space and then now is just general but diabetes has a huge part in my storytelling because it's not the actual taking of insulin and checking out the blood sugars it's the conceptual, how do you deal with a minute by minute issue that can be a problem or it can help you and it's the way you reframe it. So when I talk about a, a diabetes is like a business, I would ask you this, I'm going to propose you a business and mm -hmm. I would like, I would like you to invest. If you give me a hundred thousand dollars, I promise you, you will, you'll get none of it back. I will royally screw you and uh, everything will not work out. Are you going to invest? You would obviously say yes. No, you would say no. You'd be like, that's a dumb business investment. Yet, when we go to manage our diabetes, we're like, all right, 
I'm going to invest in my diabetes by not checking my sugar, by not bolusing on time, by not going to my appointments like I need to, by not doing this, 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 by doing this wrong thing here, here, here. Yet, I don't understand why my return is bad. If this were business or money, you wouldn't do any of those things because you see it as a bad investment. Yet with diabetes, we give ourselves permission to have a failing business. And I don't mean failing in diabetes management. I mean, we're not doing the things that we could to optimize. You know, just because you've always done this doesn't mean it's a healthy investment in yourself. So I like to reframe things with money because people understand it's weird. Mm -hmm. We understand money a lot more than we do health or joy or appreciation. That, that so, so I true. use money as a vehicle to get people to understand more. Yeah, I know I need to do that. Knowledge without action is a waste of time. It's a waste of time. I, I would always say like uh, three birds are on a wire, two decide to leave. How many are there? All three, because just because they made a decision doesn't mean they actually did it. How many people set those yearly goals or the new year, new me? My top three goals are losing weight, quit smoking, and manage my diabetes. Well, if you write those down every year and do nothing every year, what does that do for you? You know, you feel, knowing, you feel good about yourself for a few yeah, days. Yeah, <laughs> something it's a dopamine to drink to. It's a have dopamine a, hit. A couple it's, old fashions to celebrate. You've written I love those old three. Fashions. <laughs> uh, so. We, we write down goals and it feels so good to write down that goal because we get that dopamine hit and then we, yep. then we yep. leave. And it's just, it's literally like a drug. Making lists is like a drug in general. But um, I think people need to understand, hey, this diabetes business that you're doing, are you making good investments? Are you running your business, your diabetes business, the way that you should? If you were a boss... Um, would you hire yourself as an employee the way you're managing your business? Probably not. So let's change that. What do I need to do to make this business run better? I'd fire his ass. I would fire <laughs> his ass, especially this weekend, this past weekend, I fired myself, but I rehired myself today and I'm starting over. So new slate. Well, what's, what's an example? That sounds like an example of what we've just been talking about, how people self-sabotage themselves. And that's, I like some of the concepts you talk about because it's just not all positive, positive, positive. Some of yeah. the real issues. And people do sabotage themselves. What were you thinking uh, when I've heard you say that in the past? So self-sabotage is, it sounds like it's like premeditated and sometimes it's passive. Sometimes it's just trying to create a sense of normalcy and chaos. I think people revert to their past behaviors and they tend to do things passively to contribute to almost like a thermostat. If you set it at 73 and you open the doors and it goes up to 76, it'll do what it needs to do to get it back to 73. If your thermostat is set at self-sabotage, you're going to do everything to continue to do that. It takes active effort and awareness and work to make sure that you're not doing those behaviors of the past. I'll just use a perfect example. It was my birthday trip this past weekend and I went with my girlfriend to Oregon and Washington. We're hiking. And uh, I had a ton of glucose gels and all this stuff on me. It was great. I had my CGM, but I knew that I had insulin on board and I was like, okay, we're going to do a ton of hiking. It's probably going to go low, but maybe it won't, you know, like I knew, but I was like, oh, I'll do it anyways. It's fine. It's fine. It won't do that. I, I, it's, it might be strenuous activity. Maybe my blood sugar will go up. No, it tanked. It dropped royally. And I had to stop halfway through the hike, chug a bunch of glucose gels and then I had too much. So then I went on the roller coaster, went high. And I'm like, I know all of this stuff. Right, right. I know all of this stuff. But I sabotaged myself by second guessing it or saying, ah, I'll deal with it later. 
I still self-sabotage and it's not as an identity thing. Sometimes it's in the moments and we have to try and catch those before they happen or you just have to learn from them. I don't beat myself up over it, but I'm not going to allow myself to keep doing the same pattern. It happens in big moments and small moments, but you have to ask yourself, what are the things you're doing or not doing that are actually hurting you and you're aware of them? That's a very real question. If you sit down with yourself and allow yourself to take responsibility, not just responsibility, but response ability, like your ability to respond, mm -hmm. that's where you can really determine, hey, I know if I just took my insulin a little bit earlier, it would help a lot. I know if I didn't overtreat those lows, it would help a lot. What are those things that would help a lot? You know what they are, but knowledge without action isn't enough. So what's your action plan? That's what I mean by that. Yeah, I, I think that's that's one of your big themes. You know, you could be smart and have knowledge, but you got to act on it. Well, you know, Dr. Pettis and I both have type one. We're endocrinologists. We're specialists. We got clinics. And we screw up so often. And sometimes I say to myself, Steve, you've been in this situation before. Why did you give yourself fake carbs? Because you got low. Uh, and, you know, why is it that you overeat when you get low? And sometimes, Chris, you know, sometimes you can't help it because you're you're in the moment. Yep. And you're making that decision. You feel and, like you're going to die. Like, let's yeah. be real. You feel yeah. like you're going to die and food sounds so good. And And you can't you can't get satiated enough either. Yep. So, you know, I mean, I know you don't beat yourself up and I'm glad you don't, but you know, I can just tell you that myself, I've lived with type one 53 years and I still do the same freaking thing. Sometimes I say, you know, and I'm hanging out with my friend, Bill Polanski will say, Oh, Steve, you've had diabetes 53 years. Maybe you'll get it next year. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love it's that. so true. And Oh, my girlfriend, she would love this podcast. She'll say, don't over bolus. I'll say my blood sugar's high and say, you know, you give yourself a bolus and nothing happens. Do it again. She goes, stack, stack, stack. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Stack, stack. And then sure enough, I crash. Well, there's nothing, nothing that drives my blood sugars down more than hiking. You know, I mean, I am so insulin sensitive and so I know how that is and it disrupts everything. And then you feel like crap afterwards, you know? So, um, now I'm really curious about, um, your, your statement, uh, no such thing as beating diabetes or overcoming it. You're going to have to explain that one, buddy. <laughs> I love uh, little clickbait uh, kind of <laughs> concepts because I, I just like making people think and understand there's multiple philosophies. I think as in a general big term, we need more acceptance in the world of like differences. It's okay to have differences. We don't have to make our point the point, you know? Um a lot of people would ask me like, oh, how did you overcome your disability? And it really had me thinking, how do I answer that? Do I give them the normal motivational speech of, I just believe and now I just, I am, or can I be honest? Mm -hmm. You don't, there is no finish line to mental health. There's no finish line to diabetes. There's no finish line to any of this stuff. It's how do I win the day, I guess, or the moment The there is no oh, I've beat diabetes and now it. I still have it. I still deal with it. We're still going to make mistakes. We're still going to have good moments and bad. I didn't beat it. I, I live with it. The only difference is I don't live for it anymore. That's a big language shift. I now live with my condition, not for my condition. I am now Chris. I'm no longer the diabetic disabled guy. So 
did I win? I mean, maybe, but in reality, I didn't beat it. I didn't pass the finish line. I, I'm managing it actively, but it's a part of my life, not my whole life. That's what I mean by that. Yeah, I, I get it. You all, I, my blood sugar is 134 with the trend arrow straight across. I beat the crap out of my diabetes in the last hour. That's great. That's fantastic. And sometimes you beat it for days and weeks and maybe even months. Sometimes you have a, a yesterday. I just kept trending high and I like took more insulin. It would go down, then it would come back up. And I'm like, oh my God, what is going on? Maybe it was I was more resistant because I had a higher fatty meal. I could kill myself with the whys. Why was I born with diabetes? Why was I born with disability? I mean, why did I get diabetes? Why was I born with a disability? Why did this happen? Why, 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 why? We can why ourselves to death. But at the end of the day, if I figured out why I got diabetes, I would still have diabetes. Mm -hmm. I still have to do the work. People get obsessed with the why and they don't focus on the what. What yep. can I do with where I'm at right now to make this a little bit better? That's it. That one guiding principle keeps us present because the future is just anxiety and the past is just grief. So it's like, are you going to grieve the past or like wish things were different in the past? You can't control that. Or are you going to fear for the future and wonder and hope, which you can't control anyways? Why not keep it present and do what you can with what you got right now to make it a little bit better? Yeah, maybe that philosophy helped you uh, come out of the closet four years ago. It really ago. did. It really did. Well, um, let's, we can talk all day and I feel like I want to give you a big hug for being on the show on your birthday, but why don't we finish with um, your thoughts about the key to live a successful life with diabetes and anything else that may happen to you along your journey for all of our I listeners. I think it's important for everyone listening to understand quality of life is I would hope is the main goal of most people finding your quality of life, seeing what that means to you, honestly, then controlling the factors that contribute to that quality of life. You don't have to be rich. Maybe you want to be figure out if that's what you actually want. You don't have to have things or you don't have to say quality of life only exists. If I didn't have diabetes, you don't have to make it conditional. What contributes to your quality of life? What are you currently doing that contributes to it? Great. What are you currently doing that detracts from your quality of life? Okay, we need to work on stopping that. Mm -hmm. What can I do in addition to make it a little bit better? Okay, those are those are three areas. One, we don't need to do because we're already doing them. Two, we need to do less of the things that are hurting us. And three, we need to do more of the things that would help us. It sounds oversimplified, but it is simple. It's not easy, but it is simple. Mm -hmm. It takes one step at a time. No one can run a marathon right now. They can only take a single step repeated over time. The compound effect of removing the negative stuff that's hurting you and adding the positive stuff that's helping you, that compound effect over time pays off. It might not be enough right now, but right now is already gone. And you would have done one step if you chose to. Talk to me in a year, five years, you'll get there. Five years from now is going to be five years from now, no matter what. You're going to look back and say, I'm so glad I started five years ago, or I wish I would have started five years ago. And the only difference is the choice you make right now moving forward. Wow. I think with that, uh, with that ending, I don't want to say anything else other than thank you so much for being on. And I'll hope to see you at the neck at the ATD meeting or sooner. And I uh, appreciate you sharing so much time with us on your birthday. 
Thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate what you're doing for the community. We we need more of this. So thank you for committing to the people that I care about the most. Yeah, and I, it's amazing to see you grow since uh, just the first time I met you. So it's amazing. And I look forward to uh, seeing you again soon, Chris. Sounds good, Ben. <laughs>